0: The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the Podcast Guide to Comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 77 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. We had Superman Red and Superman Blue, but Chromium Superman would have been a delightful hue. I'm Adam. Comic book limericks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And returning to the podcast tonight is an old friend for whom, if he woke up in an alternate reality where Todd McFarlane had not started producing new DC Comics superpowers toys, it would indeed be the darkest timeline. It's Stephen Sapalis.
1: Like 1989 Batman, I have returned.
0: (laughs) And I'll just mention Michael will be joining us soon enough. But in the meantime, you know, Stephen and I, we've got some catching up to do. I
1: should mention this episode was made possible by by William Bruce West. That's true. On Twitter was like talking to us and then got us to be like, oh, I should come back on the show. Like I have some time. And so William Bruce West, by the way, I interact with him on Twitter a lot. He's a great guy, so funny, and it'd be great if we could be on the show together at some point.
0: I would love to get you both because uh, two of my favorite folks having you on would be awesome. And in fact, he just this week, he's like, he, he does like Facebook market purchases. He's like, hey, this guy's selling a big lot near me. Do you need any of these? We had them all already. But he's like, just want to let you know. I was like, thanks, buddy. <laughs> that's, a good, uh, that's a good pal. That's a good yeah. pal. As we've talked about before, you know, you had to move on from the show. Your job requires you to travel the country. Country. You're seeing every quarter of these United States. So have you had a chance to hit up any comics or collectible shops while you're on the road?
1: In the past few months, I've been to Los Angeles, Cincinnati, Ohio, and eastern Nebraska. And the only time I got to go to a comic book store was this past week when I was on a family vacation to Tampa. And I went to a comic book store called Yancey Street Comics, appropriately enough, Nice. uh, in Tampa. It's a great shop. They had some great Batman Forever toys sealed for like an incredible deal. And I'm kind of kicking myself for not getting them. (laughs) (laughs) But my daughter's been really into My Hero Academia lately. So we were kind of exploring that world. And they were very accommodating and and were ordering books for us. So yes, Yancey Street Comics in Tampa. Fantastic store.
0: Well, so I had to ask, too, because I know, you know you've been spending some time with the family down in Florida, and you mentioned you might be going to Universal Studios, Florida. Did you hit up Marvel's Islands of Adventure?
1: We did go to Universal Studios. We did not go to Islands of Adventure. We <sighs> just stayed at the main park, which, by the way, is completely different from when I was a kid. It's been <laughs> 25 years since I've been there, and the only ride that still is the same is E.T., and everything else is gone. It's all these, like... First of all, I'm not a huge Minions fan. I have no love for the Minions, and everything is like Minions and Transformers and Fast and the Furious. Did they have just... the
0: Simpsons Springfield down there yet?
1: Yeah, and that that part was cool. And like they still have, obviously. There's a ton of Marvel merchandise in all the stores because of this weird Florida like theme park. I, I feel like you've covered it on the show before. Yeah. But like there's this weird thing where only Universal Studios Florida has the rights in Florida to the Marvel characters. So I did see a bunch of merchandise, but I did not go on any of the Marvel rides.
0: I'm just happy to hear that E.T. is still alive and well in Florida because I'm pretty sure they took him away from Hollywood, which is where I used to go all the time. And did you ride it? Oh, of course. Yeah, that was the only ride I did go on. I,
1: didn't Hi, go on any of the rides. I said my name <laughs> at the end. He really he did. It was it was pretty cool. But you know, like these rides used to be full on experiences. Like I remember King Kong, you would walk through and be able to see into like this, you know, the apartment buildings and watch the news reports. It felt like this immersive experience. And I lament the loss of the old Universal Studios.
0: Well, Steven, we're going to take you back to the 90s. And had you been visiting then, I'm sure you would have picked up Universal Studios postcard and sent it out to your friends to make them jealous. But we're going to see what Mr. Postman was delivering to the wizard offices in Willy Lumpkin's mailbag. So here's the thing. Uh, To close out the year, Wizard decided to do something a little bit different. They were soliciting letters from famous comic book professionals and literally every letter printed in Magic Words this issue was just a gem from a comics creator and they they were all fun. But for our purposes, we're just going to read the top three here. Why don't you kick us off, Stephen? This letter says,
1: Attention, Big Jim M. Comic readership has been falling off. Let's build it back up. If you're a store owner with a stack of unsold Malibu comics in the back of your shop, take these books you you can't give away and give them away. Give them to children's shelters. Donate them to prison literacy programs. These books are now tax deductions at full cover price. Do you carry No Mercy Comics or Verotic? I have no idea what that is. That's Glenn Danzig's line of comics. Oh, yeah. No, I have no idea. Both (laughs) companies have famous rock stars behind them. Call your local record store and work out a cross-promotion. Bring in the Poison and Danzig fans. There you go. Give some unsold books to your local tattoo parlor in exchange for a sign on the wall telling their customers how to become your customers. If they're into tattoos, then they're into art, and comics are full of art. Drag in some new blood, literally. Generally speaking, tattoo fans love Boneyard Press books. These are all simple, easy steps a store owner can take to pump up the industry and their own store. I'm sure you folks can take it from there. Art D. Fisher, publisher, Boneyard Press.
0: That's kind of a genius idea, honestly, to like, if you got all this backstock you can't get rid of, the kids that aren't reading comics yet aren't going to be real picky. So if their first issue is like prototype number one, they're like, oh, this is kind of cool.
1: <laughs> it's it's not a bad idea. Yeah, give away those comic books because otherwise they're going to be sitting in the back of the... Yeah, it's like
0: you can make you know a quarter or a buck selling them eventually, or somebody's gonna come in and be hooked on comics and now they're spending 20 bucks, 50 bucks a week at your stores. Now, the next one here is very fun. It kind of gives you an idea of the reach and the influence of Wizard magazine. So this is Peter David writing in. He says, Dear wizard, I was at a convention once and a kid brought me a copy of X Factor number 90 to autograph. Now, I make it a policy never to sign books that I didn't write, and since my last X Factor was number 89, obviously this fell into that category. So I said to the kid, I'm sorry, I didn't write this, and I handed it back to him. With complete confidence, he handed it back to me and corrected me, saying wizard said you did uh i think i know whether i wrote an issue or not i told him gently i slid it back across the table to him but wizard said you did he repeated just a hint of urgency in his voice i opened the cover to the credits see look my name's not there i didn't write it but wizard said you did rising panic (laughs) rampaging through him well wizard was wrong that could happen you know It was as if I told a three-year-old there was no Santa. His face paled, his eyes had that deer-in-the-headlights look, and I realized that I just knocked the underpinnings out from under one of the constants of his world. No, no, Wizard could not have been wrong about the writer of X-Factor number 90 because... If Wizard had made an error about that, why then, there might be other errors as well. And this kid had staked his entire peace of mind on the firm belief that Wizard was never, ever wrong. His reality tumbled down around him. And then he took the unsigned comic, slid it back into its protective wrapper, and staggered away into a world that was unknown and terrifying. (laughs) Don't ever be wrong again. The mental health of fandom may depend on it.
1: So is it possible that that child was one of us? Was it me, you, or Michael, possibly?
0: I'm wondering, right? Back in the day, like, we just, you were so excited to meet Peter David. Please. Although I never read X-Factor. I only read his Spider-Man 2099. So I could check me out, you know. (laughs) Sure. But it's just, Wizard was gospel though,
1: man. I I believed everything they said. They were the tastemakers. That's for sure. Speaking of the original Tastemaker. Well, the late, great Stan Lee weighs in on the state of the comic book industry and why no one needs to fear the end of the funny book. Let's see what he says. Should I do my Stan Lee impression? I feel like it's not very good.
0: Can you hold it this long? There's quite a few paragraphs here.
1: (laughs) I doubt it. And and, like I was just watching that documentary on Disney Plus, so I've heard his voice a lot. But uh, let's try. Hi, Jim. After writing a squintillion soapbox column since the 60s. This is just what I need. A chance to write again. But hey, who could say no to a request from Wizard? So I'll tackle something that may surprise you. Comic books. (laughs) All right, I'm going to be myself now. Some yo-yos are predicting the end of comics because of inroads made by the internet. Oh man, I really, I could hear him saying the internet, video (laughs) games, television, and all the varied forms of interactive media but that doesn't cut any ice with me. I'm old, so I remember when TV started. Everyone claimed it was the death knell of books and movies. Who'd read anything when they could be entertained by the boob tube? Who'd pay to go to the movies when they could watch the stuff at home for free? Well, today, the book biz is bigger than ever, and hit movies are no longer pulling in just millions. They're approaching billions. Wow. He was very, uh, he was very right there. So get with it, doomsayers. Comic books are the most perfect form of entertainment created, Since the ever-popular you-know-what. And they'll be around as long as people love colorful, exciting, unpredictable, inexpensive, easily portable, highly collectible, perfect blendings of story, art, and wild imagination. Bet on it. And if I'm proven wrong 100 years from now, just let me know. I'll apologize. (laughs) Stanley, publisher, Marvel Comics. And they responded, I guess all I can say here is, Nuff said.
0: Man, I mean, that, isn't that great, though? It really gives you that perspective. Even comics going digital, right? A lot of people said, oh, well, that's just gonna Every comic shop's going to close everything. You know, it's just like people are hanging in there.
1: People are hanging in there. He had a point. And obviously the characters uh, are ubiquitous and just like never ending. So uh, Mr. Lee had a point there.
0: All right, well, he certainly did, and you know, if a hundred years from now he had been proven wrong, well, I'm sure it was going to make a headline in the... (laughs) So our top story this issue, The Next Image, is a report on the new imprint from Wildstorm called Cliffhanger, which will publish the new Creator owned books by Joe Madareira with Battle Chasers, J. Scott Campbell with Danger Girl, and Umberto Ramos with Crimson. These titles will be published under a sub-imprint of Jim Lee's Wildstorm Productions, again named Cliffhanger exclamation point. It says publisher Jim Lee quote, These three guys were already gravitating towards one another, and I figured Wildstorm would be a good place for them to eventually gravitate to. I think Cliffhanger is clearly mainstream, yet outside the superhero realm. And Joe Mad clarifies this. He says, quote, Our main characters will do amazing and extraordinary things like superheroes, but the settings are ones that aren't filled with superhero characters. But gotta ask yourself, right? Is this what the fans want? Well, Umberto Ramos explains, quote, It's gonna be a challenge to make superhero readers interested, but I think our artwork will be a reason for people to pick up our books. So I'm curious for you, Steven, just in this moment when these guys were going off on the road, doing an imprint within an imprint, did you have any interest at all in what these three artists were doing? Uh, zero, uh,
1: completely zero. I had no idea this was a thing. And at, around this time, I was I was hanging out at a, at a comic book store on Long Island called Muck Time. And I was seeing this stuff, but I had no interest in any of it. I was not picking any of it up.
0: Even though Wizard told you they were the hottest artists every month. <laughs> Joe Mad, Jay Scott Campbell, I mean, they're on the list always at the top. Even Wizard couldn't convince me to pick these up. Now, clarifying exactly why they chose Cliffhanger as the name for their creative collaboration, Joe Mad says, quote, a cliffhanger is an event in which the outcome is unknown until the end. Our books will feature a lot of that. And I guess you could say our venture or create our books could be called a cliffhanger, too. Now, this ended up being all too prophetic in the Case of Joe Mad's Battle Chasers. According to Wikipedia and the many geeks that we heard mentioned to us on social media every time we said, did you like Joe Mad? They're like, I did. And then this happened, quote, an average of about six months between issues, including a delay of 16 months for issue number seven, Matt produced a total of nine issues in four years, publishing two to three a year. The last issue number nine was published in August 2001 and had a cliffhanger ending that was never concluded as number 10, scheduled for November 2001, was not released for over 20 years. (laughs) Wow. So yeah, cliffhanger in every sense of the word. I mean, it's, it's the first year of Image all over again. That's what was happening here. They did not learn the lesson from their predecessors.
1: That's crazy. That's absolutely insane. The
0: one thing is, though, Humberto Ramos, like he was just cranking him out. I mean, he was getting the work done, but everybody that I hear the comments from on social media, they're like, yeah, Joe Mad got too busy playing video games and then he got into video game design instead of doing comics. So, Uh, okay. Steven, can you think of an artist for whom you would wait six months and then still buy their work, let alone 20 years? You know,
1: the, the guys that I loved were specifically... I love Daryl Banks, mm-hmm. who was who was working on Green Lantern. And I and basically, if he was doing Kyle Rayner, I would have waited 100 years to pick up the next uh, Daryl Banks Green Lantern. And also, was it Tom Grummett who drew Robin? Oh, yeah, that run of Robin. And like every time Tom Grummett draws Batman and Robin, I think that's the coolest style of Batman and Robin from that era. So those are the two names I'd pick. They're not like the giant Jim Lee, Rob Liefelds of the world, but
0: they're really great artists. But I, So I noticed, though, that you connected their art two characters that you love Mm -hmm. if they were doing a creator-owned book and they said oh it's gonna be great it's my art you love my art but it's guy in suit guy in suits he's excellent you're gonna love this story i've been working on it since i was 12 years old guy in suit and then you know you buy the first issue and you're like oh well, that is great art then you have to wait six months and then the next one's a year out would you drop the book would you be anticipating the next tom Grummet or daryl banks guy in suit
1: I think I'd have to. Yeah, I think I don't think I would wait that.
0: (laughs) It's a it's a medium that needs to be hit
1: every month, essentially. Sorry.
0: Yeah, it's like bi-monthly you can accept or the only person that you kind of say, okay is Alex Ross, because you can actually see the work involved. Yeah, yeah. All right. But yeah, he never promised monthly books. So. All right, give us our next story here. So our next story, LaRocca gets fantastic
1: news with New Assignment. Explains that artist Alan Davis, who had teamed with writer Scott Lobdell for the first three issues of the Heroes Reborn relaunch Fantastic Four, is handing over the penciling duties to Salvador LaRocca, who had just handled Heroes Reborn, the return miniseries that brought all the lost heroes back to the 616 universe. Says Lobdell of his new partner, Sal has been the invisible woman of comics. He's done a lot of good stuff, but people haven't noticed him yet. I think everyone will be pleasantly surprised with his work on FF and see him for the major talent that he is.
0: David, how would you feel if I called you the invisible woman of podcasting?
1: (laughs) It's a weird metaphor because it not only downplays his work, but it also makes Sue Storm sound like not
0: that cool. And she's awesome. she's like the coolest. Yeah. So (laughs) nobody looks at poor Sue. But I have to ask you, so... In 1998, what was your relationship with the Fantastic Four? You know, when you are a regular co-host, you were the go-to guy. Obviously, you loved the Corbin Fantastic Four movie, but you also loved the comics of the early 90s. Where were you when Heroes Reborn happens and then this era where they're bringing it back?
1: I was picking up Heroes Reborn. I was definitely into that. I, I must have picked up these issues because, again, I was hanging out at the comic book store like every week. I just have no memory of them. Are they regarded as... A good run, or well,
0: the thing is, Labdell didn't stay very long again on okay. social media. Whenever we posted something about this, people are just like, Yeah, it was great for the four issues he wrote the book, <laughs> like, and then that he that Alan Davis was gone and he was gone. And I think it was regarded as a good start that they didn't follow okay. through on. So,
1: well, I'll go back in, in the Wayback Machine and check out some of those, but yeah, I, I'm sure I read them. I just they did not make an impression on me.
0: All right, well, this next one here made an impression on somebody because Wizard winner and wade infiltrate jla announces the appearance of a new hero in the dc universe named retro oh a name after my own heart (laughs) who was created through the jla tryout contest that appeared in the wizard jla special the winning hero was created by mike laval of niles illinois and he first appears in issue 16 of JLA written by Grant Morrison drawn by Howard Porter which we have added to the archives of course it's so connected to wizard but it's really interesting because it's not like a single panel obligatory appearance it's like oh and on its tv screen in the background there's that character from that wizard contest they actually work him into the story he gets a, a pivotal role he gets a tour of the watchtower like he's like he's having conversations with the superheroes and so it's really cool like the way they worked him in i don't know that he's ever been used again maybe somebody will someday <laughs> retro but he's kind of a generic looking superhero i mean it's not like he doesn't have powers like really they just kind of say he's a guy who wanted to represent what was good about heroes and that was his selling point interesting
1: and i that's a great name for for a hero retro i could yeah. see that being
0: more of a thing I just wonder if he did have powers, what's the power that you give to him? Because like I once had a character I created in junior high and I named him revert, not really knowing what revert meant, but it just sounded (laughs) cool in nineties, you know, so like to revert, you know, like, so retro, kind of a similar thing. I wonder if maybe he'd have the power, he could turn back time, but only like a minute at a time or something. I don't know. Yeah.
1: Or he could uh, trap villains in a uh, nostalgia of their own making that they never want to escape from. <laughs> it's like you're eating
0: to go. Yeah. you're
1: eating Nintendo cereal and watching, you know, the Ninja Turtles cartoon and, and you're like, yeah, you know what? Maybe I don't want to go back to the present. This is so much better.
0: I'm a villain because this was taken from me. And now I'm back in my happy place. So why would I ever go back to villainy? Yeah. It's a great yeah, one. why
1: why did Ralston stop making cereal? They, <laughs> they're dog food. Come on.
0: I need my Ghostbuster cereal with a hologram slimer on the front, you know?
1: If we could create this reality for people, there would be no
0: depression. There would be people would just be so happy to be in that little world. Well, VR in the metaverse is on the way. I'm just telling you. But let me ask you this, Steven. If you could appear in a comic book in this fashion, but actually be a character in the story, at least for one issue, which comic would you choose? Who is the character you want to interact with most? I'm gonna
1: I'm gonna throw out a dark horse here, because obviously you know my favorite comics, but I want to be a little bit out of the realm of normal. I'm gonna say damage. Really? I really was into Damage. It was a comic book that I picked up every month. I like the dark high schooler story. I think that'd be a fun world to explore. So you'd be a fellow student hanging out with him, huh? Yeah, yeah. I'd want to be friends with Damage, you know?
0: Give the guy a break. I'm waffling between a few of my favorites, but I, I think it would just be fun to be in Snap City, where Madman lives, because it just, it seems like this idyllic town, right? But then... Mm-hmm. In the sewers, you know, you you got beatniks that are mutated. You know, you got this mad scientist who lives down the street. You just never know who you're going to run into.
1: You got like a weird, evil
0: Conan O'Brien and Andy Richter. Because <laughs> again, this is like, would you want to, you know, really exist there? I think I could feel comfortable there. And we're going to sure. get into something similar here.
1: On that topic, Wizard asks its America Online users this month, what comic book city would you like to live in? You know what, I probably voted in this. I'm sure I did. Marvel Comics' version of Manhattan won with 36% of the vote, with Kurt Busiek's Astro City placing second with 21%, just edging out the 20% earned by Metropolis, followed by Gotham with 9%, The Flash's Keystone City, and Savage Dragon's Chicago tying with 4% each, Sin City with 2%, and Nightwing's Bloodhaven with just 1%. The remaining 3% belonged to the other category, Which of these or another comic book city would you consider calling home, Adam?
0: Well, I think I would want to be in the city from the Tick comics. Mm -hmm. It's just called the city. But like everybody can be a superhero there and it's cool to pretend to be a superhero. Like that's the fad that is going on in that city. So I feel like, you know, I could just come up with a new persona every couple months and just reinvent myself. Like it would just be a fun place to be. Yeah.
1: You know... Honestly, like the Marvel Comics version of Manhattan is pretty awesome, especially like the Alex Ross depiction of it. That's hard to pass up.
0: But would you feel like you were in danger? That's what I'm
1: talking about. Constantly. <laughs> to- I mean, all the time. But that's, that's basically what it's like to be in a, a civilian in any of these cities, right?
0: yeah major city you know i i live in like the biggest city in montana which is not saying much and my wife's like oh the crime rate's going up i'm like compared to any other (laughs) major city we could be living in i think we're okay
1: (laughs) you're doing all right yeah especially compared to gotham i mean geez.
0: Next up here, Liefeld has done it again. He's stealing away talent from Marvel for his awesome entertainment imprint. See, last time, Steven, he nabbed Ed McGuinness to draw Fighting American. A little bit more on that later. And now he's caught Steve Scroach, the artist from Amazing Spider-Man, in his web of dollar signs. Now, Scrooge has agreed to draw Liefeld's Youngblood relaunch, explaining that, quote, Marvel and Awesome were very close financially, but I figured I might never get a chance to work with Alan Moore again. He's one of the greats. So that was interesting. It wasn't financial. It was like just personal fanboy fulfillment. I'm going to draw an Alan Moore story. Okay, I'm in. (laughs) Uh, But did you ever catch sight of any of the awesome titles? Like there was The Coven, there was Kaboom. that <laughs> this young blood relaunch which was very short-lived and then of course like the controversial one was fighting american but
1: that one i remember nothing else and again i had zero interest in rob life as, as a youngster or, or as an adult so it's yeah none of this none of this interested me
0: yeah i mean definitely i i was very outside of any fandom for rob Uh, But I will say that recently I picked up this black and white issue of The Coven, and I was looking at the art in this thing, and it was beautiful. The story wasn't bad either, but I was just like, if the pencils are this good, like, I kind of want to see a full issue just to really take it in because I was like, and and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but if you weren't a Rob Liefeld fan then awesome was the imprint that he was in charge of for you. And we'll talk about why a little bit later, but it's just like, yeah, he kind of figured out what he needed to be doing with that one.
1: Okay, interesting. So next up, blade goes Video in Tomb Raider 2 is a confusing title that announces an exclusive crossover comic from Top Cow featuring Lara Croft from Tomb Raider and Sarah Pazzini from Witchblade, which will be drawn by Michael Turner as a means of promoting the upcoming Tomb Raider 2 video game. It turns out the artist is a fan of the popular adventure game. He says, I was glued to my TV for weeks playing Tomb Raider when it came out. I played till I had finished every level, and then went back and played till I found every secret. I love it! But what made this promotional comic so special, you ask? It was not available in any store. Fans had to obtain the book through a mail order companies like American Entertainment or The
0: Mysterious, world wide web
1: Uh, so do you remember the hype around tomb raider when it came out were you
0: playing tomb raider Uh, so i definitely remember how big a figure uh in a manner of speaking that uh (laughs) lara croft was it's amazing how far cgi breasts will take you (laughs) like that (laughs) was all everybody was talking about they're like you play this girl and she's just like she looks amazing (laughs) and but that so that was my friends in junior high when it came out but then my brother my older brother is a pc gamer like he's 17 years older than me so he started like on the commodore computers like he's been playing forever and he was always a kid at heart so he was buying every new release we're playing command and conquer we're playing lemmings we're playing whatever that was coming out so he bought tomb raider and i remember just seeing like wow this is too hard for me to figure out like you gotta jump at the right time or whatever you know to get through this chasm but but i do remember playing it and saying like like, these graphics are amazing for just the freedom that it kind of gave you to move around in. But yeah. you know, obviously, each successive release, you're like, oh, okay, everything got smoother and smoother. But how about you? No, I never played
1: Tomb Raider ever. I, I was kind of not playing video games much at this point in my life. Do you have an opinion on the movies? Yeah, well, I've never seen the movies and oh, I worked wow. at movie theaters when they came out, but I, because I had no, like, you know, frame of reference for the game, I just had zero interest in seeing the actual movie.
0: Wow. Okay. Uh, no, I should mention too, actually, that also being promoted in wizard at this time, there were ads for Tomb Raider two coming out, but on each one, it said also a new action figure from toy biz. So like Toy Biz is like, oh, Lara Croft, everybody loves her. Now you can get her in three dimensions. A dangerous (laughs) prospect for sure. But (laughs) moving on, moving on. Finally, Wizard reveals that one of their staff members was actually drawn into a Wonder Woman comic book by John Byrne, and he didn't even have to enter a contest. Yes, copy editor Mark Wilkowski, oft mentioned, oft mocked <laughs> in uh, Wizard Magazine, appears in issue number 125 of Wonder Woman as Rabbi Wilkowski. Because as Bird explains, quote, he was the friend of a friend, and there's really nothing more subversive than that. So Wizard reveals that this friend was Ruth Morrison, who had written a few Wonder Woman stories and knew of Wilkowski's fandom for the Amazonian princess, so she kind of organized that. And this is actually referenced on a previous episode of The Wizard Files. I think it was with Brian Cunningham. He mentioned, but he couldn't remember the issue, and they mention it here, they give you a panel, so we were able to add that to the archives too, because that's a huge piece of Wizard history there, because unfortunately, Mark Wilkowski passed away a few years ago, so he is immortalized in a comic book, and that's wonderful to... To see. All right. Well, Steven, now it is time to check out our table of contents now issue 77 of wizard with a january 1998 cover date is promoted as their giant year-end blockbuster as a result it is huge we are not gonna have time to get into every single bit of this probably even on the half episode but this issue featured two different painted covers now the first was a super buff batman by british painter simon bisley who was famous for doing a lot of judge dread and lobo and the other is a spawn cover by fred fields now there was an original idea which was going to be an Ed McGuinness drawing of Deadpool reading a wizard magazine. So so the big book of wizard uh, covers tells us about that. Eventually, in one of the poster mania books, they released it. Eventually, it did come out. It was released uh, so people could get that image. But just kind of a fun little backstory there.
1: Have they never thought about this in a Deadpool movie, having him read a wizard magazine? Yeah. (laughs) it makes Like, I'd never thought of that until just now, but that would be awesome. Or like in Captain Marvel, if someone was reading a wizard, magazine that would have been great
0: yeah in the in the 90s flashback moments absolutely well they're doing the multiverse thing with deadpool 3 so we'll see we'll see how that goes now uh the issue came packed with an alex ross earth x preview comic an order form from american entertainment for tons of wizard exclusive figures and comics plus a set of christmas tags featuring madman gen 13 silver surfer deadpool and many others so everybody loved getting those christmas tags every year. Now, there was also an exclusive JLA Christmas poster, kind of done in the Bruce Tim animated style, that was backed by a January 1998 calendar by Brian Douglas Ahern, who we just interviewed on The Wizard Files. If you haven't heard that interview yet, it was so much fun. He was so enthusiastic. He had great stories, just stuff we hadn't heard about before, so that was very fun. But finally, inside the issue was an offer for a Nightwing half-comic, which they proudly promoted as their first dc comics wizard half issue can you believe it took that long steven That's
1: yeah, that's crazy.
0: They were finally coming in their own. And I just want to bring that up right here because this issue in particular really marks a turning point for Wizard as they're going into 1998. If you look at just the connection they have to the big two, but also the type of ads they're running now are not just for comic books and video games, which is kind of like the high watermark they had had previously. Oh, you know, Acclaim is advertising Turok with us or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. but now they've got ads for big budget movies. There's Scream 2 you got Tarantino with Jackie Brown. They have music albums in there, like the Mortal Kombat Annihilation soundtrack and other stuff. Yeah, I saw all of that, yeah. (laughs) But most telling of all, I guess you would say, that they had gone mainstream is hair care products. Yes, on the back of the magazine, the ad is two gorgeous models promoting L'Oreal Paris hair scent spray. Not a product I've ever heard of. Make your hair smell great. It's just bizarre. So after six years of publication, Wizard had officially sold out. They were on top of the world. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Now, flipping through, Steven, I'm sure you noticed this too, because this is another change worth mentioning. With their higher profile, the wizard staff start appearing more inside the magazine, like photos of them. They're putting themselves in the spotlight. Like in this issue, they open with a casting call of which actors would play wizard staff members in a live action movie based on their bullpen. <laughs>
1: that's hilarious and you know it kind of harkens back to the uh stan lee stuff like you know the the, uh, marvel age of comics and their bullpen like trying to create characters out of all these people it's pretty funny
0: yeah like the, the two that stuck out to me the most maybe three like the the number one is that they thought that brian cunningham looked like larry wilcox Uh, who was from chips he was the blonde guy who's not eric estrada so that was funny but also they said that jim mclaughlin looked like booger from the revenge of the nerds films just cracked (sighs) up. the special mention for me is that matt sedreich they said he looked like john henson the host of talk soup on e and i was watching a lot of talk soup at this time skunk boy yeah I used
1: to love uh, John. He was the best talk soup host, in my opinion.
0: We don't want to disparage Greg Kinnear. He's maybe a better actor than a talk soup host. Uh, but I was just seeing John Henson on Space Ghost. I was watching an old episode. I was like, hey, John Henson. All right. He's great. I love John Henson. Bring maybe. back John Henson, I say. <laughs> we'll get him on the podcast. We'll boost his profile again. No, But the thing about it, though, Steven, some people might say they're going too far because they spend six pages in this issue recapping all of the biggest stories from the office highlighting their hijinks with photos and so they're talking about all 97 here's what we did here's the comic book pros we interacted with or whatever like we played them in volleyball we played them in softball and things like that and it just feels like maybe the editorial team was starting to ride a little too high on their own success and it feels like it it really intensifies as the years go on because eventually they start putting themselves in these fumetti comics you know their heads on Mego bodies with word Mm -hmm. balloons and it just gets kind of Gets more and more about them but i feel like they're comic geeks you get a little notoriety you want all the ego boost you can get is kind of how it feels right it's like we used to be underground now we're mainstream okay we're awesome nerds rule the world yes indeed so let me just ask you about that though Stephen. for you when you were reading wizard was that a selling point for you like the community it made you feel like you were a part of oh yeah totally
1: no i i think that was like one of the main attractions was that uh there was a real voice to wizard which hero which i also loved didn't necessarily have as much of that but every article felt Personal, Like it was directed towards you. Yeah, it all felt very personal, which is what I liked about it. I don't think there was one article or one section that didn't have a voice to it. So yeah, it was always cool to like see the wizard staffers. I think it was my dream to either work for DC or wizard magazine as a writer. So (laughs) yeah, it's great.
0: You know? <laughs> We've talked Some to Some people
1: yeah. did both. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Alright, well, uh, let's get into our cover story here. There's not a Batman cover story per se, but there is a Spawn one because the Wizard Q&A with Todd McFarlane catches up with this guy who's tried to challenge Howard Stern for the title of King of All Media. But uh, McFarlane states that the hype around Spawn and TV movies and video games has not pulled him away from comics. He says, quote, I got a thousand opportunities to leave the comic book community, and I don't because I either love comic books and I'm a smart guy or I'm a freaking doorknob because I'm sticking around in a place that doesn't care. And then he starts kind of attacking other creators. He says, Jim Lee left when the Wildcats cartoon started on TV. Although Wizard puts in brackets, a brief hiatus from drawing comics. <laughs> uh, uh, and then uh, he says, will you see Joe Cassada get an animated show? Maybe, but he'd drop his book. They're gone. They're out of there. And they don't even have nearly the temptation that I've got. <laughs> of course, you know, in this process of interviewing Tom McFarlane, Wizard can't resist asking if McFarlane will ever return to penciling spawn instead of just writing and inking. He says, quote, I'm just afraid that if I ever come back, people would say, you suck. Greg Capullo's awesome. I think he's a better artist than me. I'm not just saying that because I think Greg's going to read the article. I believe that. So there you go. He's like, can I return to my glory? He knew, you know, how how huge he was in people's minds. Let me ask you this, because I know you weren't necessarily reading Spawn, but like if Todd McFarlane started penciling a book again, would you have picked it up? Would that have been a source of interest at all? Probably not,
1: because again, I was more into characters than I was into like specific artists. Yeah. So no, I I don't I don't think I would have at this point. I was like I was picking up Spawn occasionally and I was picking up Sam and Twitch. That was the. Those yeah. are the cops. I was reading that every now and again. But no, I don't I don't think I would have really cared had he returned. OK,
0: well, uh, someone else you certainly didn't care about, they ask about his relationship <laughs> with Rob Liefeld, who was ousted from Image by the other founders. But Todd says, quote, he's a funny kid. Now read between the lines with funny kid. OK, <laughs> he's a funny kid. I think he's the last guy on the planet to know that nobody cares about him anymore. Wow. But there's nobody listening. It's unbelievable how he can make the glass half full when there's nobody listening. He says, I'm, stronger for having gone to war against Marvel and Image. Every one of his defeats he makes sound good. I needed to downsize. No, everybody quit because you weren't paying them. The one that amused me the most was where he said, I couldn't wait to get out of Image. For six months and I'll show you the freaking bill. For six months, he and his lawyers prevented us from trying to get him out. He blocked it. And I just read where he said, I couldn't wait to get out. I wanted to do nothing but leave. Yeah? Then why did we both get $50,000 bills saying the exact opposite? Funny kid funny wow. kid i think the thing he was thinking in his head had an f and a k in it but i don't think he really wanted to say funny kid uh wow he's really unloading on him i
1: didn't realize yeah. that the animosity got this uh Vocal in public, wow.
0: Yeah, it's intense. Now, there's also mention, of course, they always ask the same questions. Are you going to work with Marvel again? And Todd's always been very clear, but he says here, quote, would I do stuff like Rob and Jim are doing? No, that's short term and it's small and it's finite. It doesn't add to my growth in the industry. I don't need the bucks. I'm so pigheaded that even if it was a great deal, and even if I needed to do it, I still wouldn't. I'd literally cut my nose off to spite my face just because I said I wouldn't go back to the beach. So he's just saying it one more time. But I gotta say, there's so much great stuff in this interview. We're gonna post it to social media. But we have to take a break here from Todd's opinions about everyone else and get the other comic book creators' opinions of Todd. Because there is a sidebar here called Man or Monster. Which is great. So why why don't you read
1: this first one for us here, Stephen? So Mark Wade says, I remember him from when I was his editor on Infinity Inc. He had something special going on even then. He is clearly in his own way the smartest man who's ever worked in comics. Whether you like his work or not, you have to respect the fact that he either does it his way or no way at all. He has as much creative
0: integrity as anybody I've ever seen in this industry. Okay, so that's one take. Now, Alex Ross says this guy busts serious balls by the fact that he's the most popular creator. He has the best selling book. He owns everything and he makes more money than God. He's at the top of his game and he can't be manipulated by anybody.
1: Eric Larson. I've known him since he lived in a crappy little apartment in Vancouver. I'm his oldest and dearest friend. Laughter. He hasn't changed a bit. Success hasn't spoiled him. He's always pretty much been spoiled. I think Todd's great. I enjoy him a lot. He's the closest friend I've got in Image, and if he goes, i go. Wow.
0: And they're the guys who have stuck around, that's for sure.
1: (laughs) I see what we're building up towards here, and I can't wait.
0: (laughs) Now, J. Scott Campbell says, I've always been a great admirer of his work. He has such a great flair for making comic books exciting. A hit-you-between-the-eyes kind of style. He has the ability to make every single shot exciting, and I really admire that. So David Wall of Witchblade says, The first time I met Todd, I was playing
1: alongside him at a softball game in San Diego. All I kept thinking, enviously, was, wow, all that talent, and he's a freaking good outfielder, too. (laughs) Okay.
0: I want to mention to our listeners here, David Wool. we just interviewed him for a special that we're doing. It's going to be the Wizard Files, but it's also going to be on this other site that I write for, popgeeks.com. So he he's involved with Xenoscope uh, books these days, which Michael's mm-hmm. a huge fan of. So we're doing a little special series where we're talking to people from Xenoscope. So if that's of interest to you, something to look out for. So here is what Stephen was seeing. We just heard how Todd feels about Rob Liefeld, that funny kid. So let's see how Rob Rob feels about Todd. Quote, his talents even outreaches ambitions. That may sound funny coming from me because in the last year or so, he's taken a lot of shots at me in the press, and it's confusing to me. I probably will always remember the 10 or 11 years that Todd and I were really good friends, but people grow apart. I think he's one of the more interesting people to watch in the industry. I would hate to be in a comic industry that didn't have Todd McFarlane, that's for darn sure. I honestly don't think Todd and I will be close again, although things change. But he's got a great machine that's operating very nicely. You can't argue with his success. Okay, that was pretty, that was pretty politically safe. Yeah, he's not throwing any venom back, but I think that's the secret, right? He's like, oh, I'm the hurt puppy dog, Todd, we should be friends. He's just like, I don't know what I did. You don't know what you did. Todd knows what you did. (laughs) Everyone's saying, please hire me. Yeah. But here we are. So we talked about that this is the year ender. So of course, Wizard has to rank their favorite comics of 1997. They have a piece here called Best of the Best. Now they do this every year with their Wizard Awards where they let the readers vote. But this is the Wizard editorial staff. Now, this is actually perfect, Stephen, because Michael hasn't really been around for much of our coverage of 1997 either, but you've been gone even longer. So you can kind of check in on what Wizard was giving the spotlight to at this time. So here we have for best comic book series they give it to Kurt Busiek's Astro City, about which Joe Casada is quoted as saying, quote, Astro City's strength lies in Kurt Busiek's point of view and how these superheroes remind you of other guys but are completely new. I actually go to the stores every Wednesday and pick up Astro City because of its richness jim lee adds quote you sit down you read it and you know at the end you'll have that warm fuzzy feeling if you're an older fan it takes you back if you're a new fan it shows you what can be accomplished when a writer and artist are in sync with each other and really care about their work have you checked out astro city steven have you ever given it a shot
1: no but I, I should based on this it's never
0: been on my list but yeah I'll pick it up. Yeah, I I recommend it, man. I finally checked it out, you know, this last year. And I'm just like, it's everything they said. All those pages spent gushing about Astro City is 100% accurate. All right.
1: Best hero goes to Robin, my favorite hero of all time. As noted by Wizard, since his monthly series began, he's quickly becoming the classic Spider-Man of the 90s, an honest every guy you'd want to hang out with. And like the Spidey of old, he's got a lot of problems that come with being a teenage superhero. Lots of them, sure. He runs around in tights, knows martial arts, and even hangs around the Batcave. But if we were in his shoes, we'd make the same mistakes. It's interesting coming off the heels of Batman and Robin in 1997 (laughs) that Robin is listed as the, uh, the, the best hero. I mean, good for Robin. Because the the public perception of Robin in 1997 was possibly at its lowest.
0: Well, I'm sure that's why Wizard hates extra hard on Batman and Robin. They're like, look at what you had to go with this source material. You have the best Robin ever here. You have this excellent Tim Drake character. You could have mixed Dick and Tim and put them together. Instead, we got Chris O'Donnell.
1: And I'll defend Batman and Robin as a movie now. But yeah, at the time, we all were like, this is not great.
0: But the other thing I want to say is it's a little surprising because it kind of comes out of nowhere. They are not talking about Robin every month. They're not talking about how great the book is. Like Kirk Busiek, Astro City, it's like every issue. They'll tell you, mm. if you're not reading it, you're missing out. They never mention Robin. So it's weird that all of a sudden they're just like, hey, he's the best hero of all. You're like, what? <laughs> okay. Keeping it to yourself, I guess. Agree. Uh, Hard agree. All right, next one here. Best villain goes to Baron Zemo. Because as Wizard explains, quote, he and his masters of evil have disguised themselves as the superhero team, the Thunderbolts. Zemo is now admired and adored by the American public under the identity of Citizen V. This could be the greatest scheme any Marvel villain has hatched. The biggest hoax in the history of the Marvel Universe. And it's all stemming from the mind of Baron Zemo. So there you go. Actually, I love here. Uh, there was some sort of autocorrect and it called him Barton Zemo. <laughs> and I'm just, I want to see that Barton Fink meets Baron Zemo. <laughs> I would watch that. That would be really good. Or Clint Barton. Maybe it's a Hawkeye goes undercover as Baron Zemo. I don't know.
1: Actually, that's, that's a good idea too. Wow. These would be both great, <laughs> great crossovers. Best writer goes to Kurt Busick. Wizard declares, from Marvel's Thunderbolts to Image's Eisner Award-winning Astro City, Busick's unique writing style has a way of building up superheroes to godlike stature while simultaneously humanizing them. Busick brings the awe-inspiring world of superheroes down to street level.
0: Okay, now, I don't know like how much of his work you've read, you know, outside of Marvels, but just he and Mark Wade can't write a bad story. No matter who you give them to work with, it just comes out beautifully.
1: Totally, no, I've read I've read a, a couple of his stories and and totally agree
0: now best artist goes to Joe Matarera Jim Lee says of Joe Mad's mark on the industry at just 23 years of age quote I admire how he's influenced a whole new wave of artists by adopting a very well defined manga style into American comics and I think he's only going to get better he is sparking the next generation of artists now wizard also praises Matarera's ability to design costumes and then from Berto Ramos offers quote I love how Joe makes costumes look real the material looks like it would if i saw it in real life and that's why joe is great because every artist wants to make their character designs look like joe's do and it's true i mean he was like the guy he was the jim lee of the moment you know that everybody's like oh we're gonna start drawing like him we, if this is what people want to see uh, it never appealed to me but i know that so many of you listening you love your joe mad we hear it non and then you got mad at joe mad that he basically kind of got lazy with comics <laughs> So
1: next up, Best Slugfest goes to JLA versus Heaven and Hell. This is in reference to a series of stories involving the guardian angel known as Zoriel coming to Earth while being pursued by renegade warrior angels from Heaven, the moon being knocked out of its orbit by Neron, the ruler of hell, and in the end finds the JLA winning because Flash discovered the angels existed as supersonic sound vibrations, and then with the help of Green Lantern, he created a sound cannon and wiped the angels from the earthly plane. Ah, pretty epic. That's... wow.
0: Okay. Yeah, I had no idea that was going on. I will say I was reading JLA, like like the first, you know, issues. And then when I got to the Zoriel character, I was like, wow, I hate this guy. And I stopped reading. So that's why I missed this whole story arc. Because I was like, oh, that guy turned me off. So I don't know if you ever heard about him steven but he was like a creeper angel who's a guardian angel for this earthly woman he falls in love with her so he ditches heaven so that he could go beyond earth with her and you're like that's that's weird dude (laughs) is
1: that not is that's not the plot of the uh the paul hogan movie
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah is that down to earth what's that one called almost an angel what is that one i forget
1: (laughs) all i remember is it was always on hbo and i never wanted to watch it it's called almost an angel is that what you just said that's what i
0: said yeah that's crazy well this is another one i'm curious to know if you've heard about i was just talking about it on our recent half episode but best sleeper book goes to akiko by writer and artist mark crilly wizard explains quote akiko is a fourth grader from earth who is summoned to the bizarre and wondrous planet smoo to help find smoo's kidnapped prince it's great space opera and wonderful high adventure now, it should be no surprise a wizard like this, actually, because they love Star Wars so much and it has a very Star Wars feel to it. But then it's kind of like, I feel like it's like Little Nemo mixed with Star Wars is kind of the feeling. Although, here, when asked how he found inspiration for his black and white indie book, Crilly, I feel, should have maybe chosen his words more carefully because he states emphatically, quote, I immersed myself in girls! Damage control! Damage control! look out that's
1: weird
0: i don't want that whole quote on your book you know (laughs) (laughs) to clarify crilly goes on to say quote i used to teach english to young girls in japan and taiwan for five years i tried to reproduce that youthful speech in a way that sounds real so he had experience from his profession but still immersing yourself in girls I just... mm. (laughs)
1: Yeah, okay, yes.
0: (laughs) So best moment goes to
1: Thunderbolts revealed. As Wizard explains the most masterful part of it all, Marvel went through an extensive marketing campaign with the Thunderbolts. Creators Kurt Busiek and Mark Bagley did interviews in Wizard and other magazines, all the while keeping their trump card well hidden. As Busiek reveals, we played interviews as if the team was what it appeared to be. It was a delicious feeling to know that we had an actual honest to God surprise coming. It was gratifying to hear from other pros who were taken in too. They told me they hadn't been surprised by a comic book in over a decade, but Thunderbolts took them off guard. It was sweet. So that's kind of what they're doing with the movie now too, right? Isn't that the rumor that the lineup that you see that has been announced isn't the full lineup? Ooh, I hadn't heard that,
0: but I love that because yeah, it was kind of disappointing. (laughs) Who they (laughs) chose to put on that team. Oh, how are they going to do that? Yeah, like, well, but that's the thing, like, you know, not to get too far off topic, but they take these names They take these ideas and they take away the coolest part of those stories, like secret evasion. I mean, unless they're going to surprise us again, just because they haven't told us, like, are we going to find out Black Widow was a scroll? Like, are they really going to give us a character we cared about who was, you know, fooling us all the time? And same with this, like with Thunderbolts, they took existing villains, but are they giving them superhero personas or are they just saying, oh, these guys are reformed and they're good guys now. And it's like Suicide Squad. Like that's the, that's how it looks.
1: Yeah, I don't know
0: what they're doing with it.
1: I don't know either. And I I, I started watching Secret Invasion last night. And after this, I'll probably watch the second episode. So I'm curious to see where that goes, too. Yeah, in general, I'm not quite sure what direction Marvel's headed in uh, (laughs) with their MCU. I just hope they write the ship before Fantastic Four comes out.
0: They're killing time until Fantastic Four and X-Men. That's all they're doing in this phase. Maybe. Who knows? (laughs) We'll see. All right. Give us our next category here.
1: So the next category best new character goes to dog welder from dc comics since most readers had never heard of him wizard provides some insight into the character by saying quite simply he welds dogs to bad guys faces <laughs> as a member of the misfit superhero group section 8 he fights the good fight in the Cauldron neighborhood of gotham city the baddest section of a badass town in the pages of hitman hitman artist john McCrae reveals the secret origin of dog welder's creation via preacher artist steve Dillon. Steve was sitting in a pub one time with a bunch of mates and they were all trying to come up with the stupidest superhero name ever. Steve said Dogwelder and everyone said, "Okay Steve, you win." McCrae came up with the look of the character, Garth Ennis wrote the words, and now according to Wizard, Dogwelder was the best of 1997. This reminds me of a story from my own life. When I used to work in reality show development, when I worked in Los Angeles, I was a development assistant and my boss, who was the head of development, came to me with the dumbest idea I've ever heard for a television show in my entire life, where he wanted to find stray dogs in the streets of Los Angeles and strap cameras to their heads. (laughs) So you could see what was going on in their lives. And I was like, most of the time, people, you'll just see a guy looking at a dog and saying, why is there a camera on it?
0: <laughs> or another dog's butt. I mean, that's all you're going you to
1: see but... a lot of weird stuff like that. Yeah. But he had a whole vision for this show with dogs with cameras strapped to their heads. And I had to write a pitch for it. So uh,
0: that never saw the light of day. A job is a job, right? You know,
1: you gotta make ends meet when you're trying to.
0: Work. Did he have a title for the show? I
1: think we just called it like Strays or something like oh, that, yeah. or like the World of a Dog. <laughs> I forget. It was a terrible company to work for, and I'm glad
0: I'm not there. <laughs> All right, well, getting to the big prize here, Publisher of the Year goes to DC Comics. Wizard points to the fact that in addition to the most iconic superheroes, DC also has the adult market covered with their Vertigo line and even hard sci-fi through their Helix imprint. And as Wizard explains, quote, Image Comics' top cow studio exploded in popularity in 1997, but there's not enough variety in its fantasy-oriented line to overtake DC. And though not all of DC's books are top-notch, the best of DC's line are the best comics out there, period. So it's always weird when Wizard takes a stance like that because you know, like, they're trying to get advertisers, you know, they want Marvel to do more stuff with them. They're like, no, we think DC's better than you. We're just saying, but then they say, look out for next year cuz marvels starting to rise up it looks like they're getting back on track so they're covering all the bases you know okay
1: so yeah they're playing they're playing it down the middle a little bit you know it's funny i was thinking about this these past couple of weeks ever since the flash has come out how as a kid by far dc was my favorite i mean dc owned everything to me like it was tv and cartoons and movies and the comic books i was reading and the action figures like dc was the best and now to see <laughs> how the kind of popular image of DC and like the mainstream culture has been so sullied by these movies and the way they've been rolled out. It's kind of depressing as a, as a kid who just loved these characters to see how my kids feel about, about DC. Yeah,
0: maybe James Gunn writes the ship. We'll find out. We'll find out. I guess we'll see.
1: But I speaking we'll of see.
0: regrets here, Stephen...
1: In a sidebar titled What Were They Thinking, Wizard also highlights the biggest disappointments of 1997, including included are the end of Operation Zero Tolerance in the X-Men books, Heroes Reborn, quote, it's a shame that this successful marketing gimmick treated the fans to a full year of nothing. More bad comic flicks in the form of Spawn, Steel, and Batman and Robin. I like at least two of those. Lame comic book video games where Batman and Robin is trashed again. The cancellation of Aztec, the ultimate man by DC. And finally the, the declaration that Spidey still sucks.
0: They just can't win over there when it comes to Spidey and wizard's eyes.
1: Specifically, they voiced their disgust with the return of Norman Osborn after 24 years when his death had been so cool and meaningful to Peter Parker's story for two decades.
0: Okay. I mean, I'm actually surprised this section isn't longer, you know. But again, Wizard wants to keep advertisers, so they're not going to complain too much. Yeah. This issue also featured a 1998 preview, which is highlighting the upcoming storylines for books from all of the major publishers. But we're going to be covering those stories in future episodes and future issues, so there's no need to go through that hype list. But Wizard takes a more unique tact on looking into the new year in their piece titled, The Fate of 98. Very nice. Which seeks to answer the most important comic book questions in the minds of fans and includes fun illustrations by cartoonist Fred Hembeck. Do you remember Fred Hembeck doing a lot of Marvel stuff back in the day?
1: I don't.
0: You don't recognize this cartooning style?
1: Let me see. I'm gonna I'm gonna look it like up. Have you
0: ever picked up like Marvel Age or he would yes, take up full issues of sub superhero comics occasionally for a joke? Yes.
1: No. Yeah. I, I I know this exact style and I loved it. Yes. Yeah. I did. I did not know his name was Fred Hembeck, but I remember loving this uh, this style. It's even a good cartoonist name, you know. It is a great name. I, I immediately you think like uh, Hanna Barbera
0: cartoonist. Ah, Hembeck. so first they ask will superman put dc over the top in 1998 or is a 60 year old hero starting to show his age This specifically talks about whether the Superman movie would make the Man of Steel more popular than the Dark Knight in pop culture. So they quote a journalist for The Hollywood Reporter named Scott McKim who says, quote, It's puzzling to me. Warner could make more money doing more George Clooney Batman films. Most people have a problem with Nick Cage's Superman. The first thing they think is, that guy needs a hairpiece. <laughs> Jeez. They then ask the adventures of Superman writer Carl kiesel who states, quote, Batman has been bigger in merchandising ever since the 1960s. I don't know that Superman can match it. Then regarding whether it would mean selling more Superman comics, he adds, quote, Since the first Batman movie, there's never been a sales bump associated with a movie. I think we'll get higher visibility, but I don't know about a big sales boost. Now, uh, you and I uh were just talking with Michael about the announcement of the Superman and Lois Lane actors for this new James Gunn film today. So this is very timely. New Superman film, who's going to star? But I have to ask you, just in your opinion, what you know about it. Would the Nick Cage film have just confused people about who the character of Superman is? Or do you think it would have created, like, a new outlook on Superman?
1: That's an interesting question. And ever since The Flash, I've been wa- I've been watching that documentary, The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? Or yeah. re-watching. I've seen it a couple times already. And my Thought is, and we were talking about this today on Facebook. So I'll reiterate: the Christopher Reeve Superman set such a high bar for what the casting of Superman would be, and from Superboy on, every live-action Superman has been trying to emulate that exact Superman. And you know, looking at the casting, this guy David Cornswet—is that his name? Who who got cast?
0: I don't know. I didn't
1: recognize either of them. So oh, come on, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Haven't seen it. (laughs) Oh, she's great. She's going to be perfect for Lois. But he looks like Christopher Reeve. And, you know, when I think of what Tim Burton was trying to do, Nicolas Cage is not at all like Christopher Reeve. He's his own weird thing. So I have to give him kudos for trying to do something different and take it in a different direction. It would have been cool to see that movie. I don't know if it would have worked. I don't know if it would have been good, but it would have at least been weird and interesting. I think it would have been cool. It definitely would have changed people's perception of the character, but maybe that's a good thing.
0: Hey, geeks. It's time to take a break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Manscaped. If you haven't heard already, it's Smooth Sack Summer. When you're playing in the summer (laughs) sun, make sure you're manscaped from pubes to bum. That's right. (laughs) This is the summer to keep your
2: balls cool while still
0: looking hot
2: with Manscaped. The leaders in Below the Waist Grooming are making sure we all have a ball this summer by giving our pants partners everything they need to stay fresh, dive head first into smooth sack summer by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with the code WIZARD20, which my cousin just told me he ordered as well. Oh yeah, I mean, this is the Season, man,
0: like they're saying. And you know who's the king of summertime manscaping, Michael? It's Namor, <laughs> the submariner. His Atlantean speedo leaves very little to the imagination, and dude always looks
2: smooth when he's battling the villains of the deep blue sea. Imperious Rex. Namor obviously hooked himself up with Manscaped Performance Package 4.0, and it's time you do the same. It has everything you need to prepare that summer bod. Manscaped has built the ultimate grooming bundle for your summer grooming. Their Manscaped Lawn Mower 4.0 trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents, thanks to its advanced skin safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor, a new multi function on off switch to engage travel lock. That's kind of cool. And gives you the ability to turn the 4,000 Kelvin LED spotlight on and off when needed for more precise shaves.
0: I'll just tell you, Michael, like I busted out my equipment for the summertime. You know, it's getting hotter. I got to have less hair on the body, you know, just trying to keep it uh, nice and cool around these parts. I'm excited. Both of those pieces of equipment are just so easy to use. That's the best part. I don't have to like prep anything. I'm just like, nope, it's ready to go. It's a smooth experience all the way around. I got to say
2: also the battery lasts a long time. Like if you charge this, it will last you several uses before you need to recharge it as well, which I find very interesting. Did I mention
0: this trimmer is waterproof too? Beach, Mm -hmm. lake, or shower this razor will devour even the strongest pubes. (laughs) And once you have the perfect haircut, you can use Manscaped's liquid formulations to keep that freshness even at the hottest summer barbecues. Most (laughs) importantly, use the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant to stay cool in the heat with a soothing aloe vera formula. It's the best in the business for below-the-waist freshness, and this clear-drying formula will keep looking
2: good while smelling good. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0. The Manscaped Boxers, which I wear quite often. They're very... Very comfortable. And the Shed Travel Bag, wearing sandals with some nasty toenails during the summer months. Take a look at the Shears 2.0, a luxury nail grooming kit. This kit includes stainless steel nail cutters, tweezers, and grooming scissors. So with the Performance
0: Package 4.0, your balls will be ready to impress, but make sure you cover the rest with the Shears 2.0. So how do you go from Imperious Rexy to Imperious Sexy? Go to Manscaped.com now. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code WIZARDS20 at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code WIZARDS20 at Manscaped.com. It's Smooth Sack Summer Geeks. Get on board or get left behind.
2: And hey, somebody just joined.
0: Yeah, and somebody just flew in right from Metropolis. He's here to answer the same question. Hey, how you doing, Michael?
2: Uh, I'm good. So what was the question again? I'm terribly sorry for derailing the show as usual.
0: (laughs) Well, this is something I'm sure you have an opinion on, which is we were saying if the Nick Cage Superman film had happened, How do you think that would have affected people's perception of Superman as a character? Do you think, like, everybody would have seen him as a joke, and so they would have made it more comedy? Or do you think people, like, they just would have been confused, like, Tim Burton, why are you doing this, based on what you know about the movie?
2: I feel like if they classify movies like The Force Awakens or Batman v Superman as really polarizing films, I feel like the Nick Cage-led Tim Burton film, based on what I know about the, you know, giant spider and the the electronic or whatever the hairdo
0: suit they talked the ha- about, is
2: the really- hairdo with the receding hairline. I think it would probably be the most polarizing film ever in comic book. You know, lore, especially, you know, because it would be around the time of Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, which Batman and Robin is, you know, widely considered one of the worst, uh, even though my present company may disagree with me in some capacities. Pretty good at times. It has its moments. It has its moments. You know, that being said. Like the, the the thing about the Nick Cage portion of it in, in particular is aside from looking at Christopher Reeve or Henry Cavill or, or Brandon Routh or all those guys, I just don't see him as the Kansas farm boy. He's like a Philadelphia roughneck kind of guy.
0: A scumbag Superman. Yes.
1: <laughs> you, you buy him as a complete alien to Earth. Which was the
0: angle, right? That's what they said. Yeah, which you don't
1: buy. I mean, I love Chris again. Christopher Reeve set the high bar like he is the best Superman in live action ever. But you don't buy that. He's an alien on Earth. He looks like the perfect human being.
2: But that's the point. Like he's supposed to be more human than we are, you know?
1: No, I get it. But like, I think what Tim Burton and his Tim Burtonness was trying to do was really play the alienated Edward Scissorhands type. Mm-hmm. uh Superman, which would have been—I'm not saying it would have been good, <laughs> but it, it would have been something new and different that no one's ever done in live action before,
2: and still to this day not really done. You know, yeah, Are we going to talk maybe. about the Flash at all? By the way, we can talk about the Flash. i You know, if, if, if Adam later, is later. in mind we got to get on show. track
0: here. Michael's finally here, so okay. good. Right,
2: so next question: Will Todd McFarlane ever draw a comic again? When asked, Todd says plainly, there's nothing on the schedule. So I guess the short answer is no. Penciling requires full concentration. I've got to lay out a page, do thumbnail sketches, render it. I've got to isolate myself for that alone. But one of the reasons I stopped was that I didn't want to take shortcuts. I want the product to remain good. Do you guys think Todd will get back to penciling comics or should he just keep focusing on the toys? I mean, he did
0: briefly, right? He did another Batman spawn and I didn't hear it ignite the world. I only heard criticism. So I think everything he's saying is kind of accurate. He, he had some quotes earlier. He had a full interview where he's basically saying like, I got other stuff on my mind. Greg Capullo's better. Uh, I just, I don't, I don't want to try to live up to my legacy essentially. And I think that's probably been the best way to go for him, in my opinion. Steven? I think you
1: should just stick to making those superpowers toys for me, and that's, uh, that's yeah.
2: about it. Because <laughs> some of the other McFarlane toys, like some of them are amazing, and some of them are just like, whoa, boy, but those superpowers ones are dynamite.
1: And they're getting better. Each, each line is a little bit better than the last one. Yeah. Alright, so Wizard then asks, will Wolverine finally get his adamantium back? Oh man, I remember how big this storyline was. To put this in context, X-Men fans had been Seeing the bone claws for four years at this point, new X-Men writer, Stephen D. Siegel, not to be confused with Steven Seagal states, (laughs) everyone knows this wasn't a permanent change, but it's gone on for a long while now by giving his adamantium back. I think fans believe it'll return him to a certain badass status and make him more of the indestructible tank that he is. And if the fans want it, so do we, it have to be a big story arc and we just need to find the time Tell a story like that. So, how big a difference does the adamantium make to you guys in terms of Wolverine as a character?
2: Well, first of all, I forgot that it was like four years of him without it. I really think, like, especially I've sort of re- started rewatching the animated series from the '90s in preparation for the X Men '97 coming, and the adamantium claws sort of define him even more than anything else. Like, that's really what you know—the metal claws are what define him, if you ask me. On top of that. Was it really a big event when they brought his adamantium back? It was sort of like a, almost like a one-off, I feel like.
0: Well, I mean, I will say that I just disagree with you because I don't think the claws being Metallic in any way, you know, having the unbreakable bones necessarily makes Wolverine who he is because he has the healing factor. So, regardless, like that's all stuff that happened after the fact to him. That was in addition to he apparently he always had the claws. That's what we learned, right? And all of those things. So, if he had started out with bone claws, I think he would have been just as cool because he would have had the same attitude. Maybe he wasn't tortured by the Weapon X program. So, maybe he was slightly less feral slightly less you know angry and bitter at the world but i still feel like he could have been just as cool without the adamantium
2: but seeing him swipe the claws through steel is like nothing else you know yeah i agree (laughs) i i I thought the storyline was cool and
1: i like how much they committed to it because it was a huge shocker but he's he needs the adamantium claws in my opinion
0: I'm in the minority. Next up here, expanding on their declaration that Spidey still sucks, they ask, has Spider-Man hit rock bottom? Wizard laments the fact that as they put it, quote with the exception of seeing a marriage counselor Peter's life is all rainbows now Peter's married to a supermodel he has a steady job with a steady income school is working out just fine and it seems over a dozen people know Peter Parker is really Spider-Man and then a wizard mentions that the X-Men books outsell all the Spider-Man titles which is no surprise it's like duh but then they add quote since new artist Adam Kubert jumped onto Incredible Hulk that title now outsells each book in the Spidey family as well and you're like whoa okay so the downturn in the wall crawlers popularity is acknowledged by sensational spider man writer todd Dezago, who says quote i think mistakes have been made in the past concerning the character not necessarily by the creative guys chosen to work on the books i guess you can say we're in the process of bringing him back to life So similar question to Wolverine, are angst and misfortune from outside forces central to Spider-Man storytelling? Is that the only way he works? Or is it just his power set and his general group of friends and family that he hangs out that makes a difference to you?
2: Um, I don't think the angst and misfortune are like really, like, I personally like 30 something Peter Parker. I don't like high school version Peter Parker. College is fine. But I just, I always look at him again, like the animated series. I feel like he was in his like late 20s for a large portion of it. And I think the biggest problem that had with Spider-Man at this time, and even into the early 2000s is they were at some point releasing weekly books of Spider-Man. And they had so many titles of Peter Parker in, you know, spectacular, amazing Spider-Man, etc., cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that people were just like, I don't care. Whereas the X-Men, you could throw different people in different books and then it it draws them in different ways, in my opinion. What do you say, Stephen? I think that at times it's okay to veer
1: away from that and give you different flavors of Spider-Man. But I think at its core that is kind of what it's about. Like, if you're telling a, a, your first Spider-Man story, it should be about that. But, you know, 30 years on it, as we were reading it at this point, it was okay that he was married to a supermodel and <laughs> doing all right for himself. So...
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I like a hundred percent like the domesticity of spider-man like everything's great now and i'm comfortable and living the 90s dream of you know middle class life like that i do think like there should be struggles that are coming in that change the game and the dynamic of his world for stretches but just not not as long as like the clone saga and things like that like don't make it like a four-year thing like you know wolverine's claws or anything else or you know the adamantium like like it should just be like story arcs like okay this changed we gotta deal with it okay now i gotta think about things differently because of this but i yeah i don't think he needs to be like a tortured soul like you know like i think he's someone i like like the 10 years in spider-man where he's just like okay i've got a handle on this thing i know all the other superheroes in town i'm gonna help out where i can and i think yeah he doesn't have to be like depressed or being tortured all the time by life you know so.
2: what i kind of compare him to a lot of cases dick Grayson, and nightwing you know like they both had like a tragic past, but I feel like they work best when they become they rise to be the leader of something, yeah. and they can use that pain but still be like a mentor and help people get better and and that kind of thing. That's I th- I feel like they they're a good comparison, if you will. All right, what's our next question here, Michael? So, returning to the man of the hour, Wizard, ask: Can Joe uh, Matarero, Mar- Matarero Matarera? Uh, survive without the X-Men. They state simply, survive, yes. Maintain his level of popularity, highly doubtful. Joe Casada gives his opinion on that. Riding the X-Men wagon helps a person's career, and the true test of Joe's mettle will come as he does this new creator-owned title. I bounce around high-profile projects before starting event comics, but Joe only has X-Men really on his belt. It's not going to be easy. Joe Mad seems at peace with this, however, stating, I consider X-Men to be the beginning of my career, not the end. Sure, I may not be as popular next year, but my art will get infinitely better. To me, that's what's important in the long run. And I think fans will agree after seeing it. So
0: to you guys, like I'm curious, is it important to you that an artist is growing and getting better and the quality of their work is so impeccable that you'll buy it no matter how long it takes for it to come out or is it better that you have somebody who consistently produces very good work maybe it's not like the you know the most detailed ever but you can always find it you always know it's coming out like for somebody's career if they're going to make it a career in comics what's the most important part their artistic ability or their consistency?
1: I, I will always say consistency. It's a deadline driven medium and you gotta be able to deliver, in my opinion, every month. And I respect those guys. Those those are the guys that are doing it and, and, and getting the work out there and, and making a living at it. And that's that's what I think.
2: Agreed. I do agree with the consistency part of it, but I will say that like if I heard Alex Ross was, you know, painting a book and it could take four years to come out, I'll still by each issue like it's just he's one of those guys that or Gary Frank even when he was doing you know certain books that might get delayed at times I just love his art so much that I'm just like I have to ride the wave and stick with it whereas like Capullo he can stay consistent and still keep good quality all the way through I don't know how he does it it's amazing that he can keep on track all the time but you know
0: Yeah, I mean, those are the guys I respect the most. And it's like, yeah, I have a distinct style, and I know how to get it done. And I don't have to, like, labor over it, and I don't have to, you know, delay the project just because I I have to get it perfect. I have to get it just right, you know, or or it never comes out or
1: whatever. The movie talk is next as they ask, will the much-rumored X-Men and Spider-Man movies ever be made? They cite all the production delays in the script for the X-Men movie, and the legal rights issues of Spider-Man... But as we all know, within five years' time, we get both movies. So next question.
0: Yeah, nothing to talk about there. Yes, they're going to happen.
2: They've gone from the James Cameron project, though.
0: Next one here can awesome entertainment successfully overcome the controversy surrounding Rob Liefeld? This is what I was kind of hinting at earlier that Rob has cracked the code when it comes to producing quality books that will sell without controversy when he says, quote, the biggest difference between awesome and extreme studios is I've surrounded myself with more seasoned veterans and already established young artists. So the focus isn't all about me. And then even Mark Wade, from whom Liefeld kind of stole Captain America, has to admit, quote, I think with enough talent that they've been recruiting, sure they'll survive, and with original stories, they'll do even okay. That one feels like a little bit of a dig. They're not going to do great. They'll do okay. <laughs> but Rob can't help but be boisterous. Even when trying to sound like he's turned over a new leaf, he's more mature. He says, quote, the year of my being controversial has passed us by. I battled nuclear missiles this last year. And I think I'm pretty damn near invulnerable. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> like that, what does that it, have to do with selling quality books? And, it I means
2: don't... sticks and stones may break my bones, <laughs> yeah. but words will never hurt me, is what he's trying to say. Yeah, pretty much I don't know listen he he still seems like he's uh hasn't fully matured if you will fact <laughs> <laughs> like that he blocked us for god's sakes on twitter (laughs) oh my goodness finally wizard asks where's jim shooter mentioning his successful but forced departures from both marvel and valiant comics then failed attempts to make defiant and broadway comics a success shooter reveals to wizard i'm doing a variety of writing practically none of it for comics i'm primarily doing developments in for major motion pictures like saban entertainment with any luck now i'm a screenwriter would you consider them major motion pictures for i Saban? review a
0: lot of their movies now at popgeeks.com they're they're definitely not major they're they're, independent. they're yeah.
2: not major
1: But <laughs> they're point? ones up above roger corman yeah <laughs> trying to see what they were up to at that point
0: that's true yeah i think they were still trying to milk everything they could with yeah, all their power and doing... money. Okay.
2: speaking yeah. of roger corman by the way in the next episode of box office 30 one of the movies that came up was carnosaur and i I talked oh, yes. all about it and because pete had never seen it and he's like what is this all about i'm like just ask steven he'll tell you it, <laughs> it's got the fantastic four trailer <laughs> of the vhs it sure does <laughs> anyway so he's working for Saban entertainment shooter does mention a one-off comics project however jim starlin called and remarked that we've never done a book together so we sent in a Gen 13 bootleg proposal we had in mind for Wildstorm. As for any future comics project, shooter states matter of factly, if a publisher is interested, they know where I live. <laughs>
0: Everybody knows Jim Shooter. If they want him, they'll get him, you know? All right. Well, guys, that is, uh, yeah, all the excitement that we had uh, in the world of comic books. But hey, we want to find out about excitement that was on the silver screen. There was a lot of it talked about here, but what was the news they wanted to highlight? So, Michael, why don't you take us into
2: Heroes in Motion? In the trailer park section of Wizard 77, all hype for films that never happened. What a surprise. <laughs> Not a shocker. First up, it's reported that Superman Lives, originally promoted as a 1998 release, will now be slated for summer of 1999 blockbuster. Sure it will. In reality, we had to wait 24 years before we saw Nicolas Cage as Superman, quote unquote, in The Flash this summer. Meanwhile, Spawn sequel- Wait, 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 no,
0: no. You wanted to talk about The Flash. Now you can.
2: Okay. All right. Is it the biggest piece of garbage I've ever seen in my life? No. Did everybody in the movie act their tails off? I think so. Are the visual effects at times god-awful? 100%. I have three main thoughts. One, I thought- Sasha Calais was incredible. She steals the whole movie Two, Michael Keaton needed more screen time. And three, the CGI babies in the beginning of the movie, in particular, going into the microwave, took me out of the movie right away. Take it away, gentlemen.
1: <laughs> I agree with a lot of those points. I will say while I was watching it, I was mostly enjoying it. Mm-hmm. It's not like a particularly terribly offensively bad movie. It just it wasn't what we it
2: expected. wasn't Flashpoint.
1: <laughs> it wasn't Flashpoint. And also, like, I don't know, man, I I hate to sound like this, you know, the complaining nostalgic guy. But if you're going to bring back Michael Keaton's Batman, you got to really bring back Michael Keaton's Batman and not just have him in a couple scenes and saying the big lines, like give him his own story. I wanted to see. You know, the whole idea of the multiverse is you get to enter all these worlds that you would never see otherwise. And we didn't really see him enter too many worlds that we would never see otherwise. It was mostly a weird time travel blip story. And then at the end, we saw some of the other worlds. We never saw Gotham City. We saw Batman's suit in broad daylight, which to me completely ruins the aesthetic that they had created. For it in the 89 Batman movie. And again, I, saying this makes me sound like, you know, uh, you know, old man waves a cloud.
2: But... but it's funny you mentioned the Gotham City thing in particular. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but when the two Barrys pull up to Wayne Manor, they pull up in a central city cab. Yes. So you're I telling me you, that you're taking a cab all the way from Central City all the way to Gotham in one ride? Like, they, that's that doesn't make sense. And it makes
1: no sense. And, and how are they like, there are these broke kids who are, are paying for a cab ride <laughs> through
2: <laughs> multiple states,
0: theoretically? Yes. So I'm going to give my thoughts, so we have to move on. But th- this is just my only thing. I mean, I love it for the fact that it went so deep on this alternate reality where Eric Stoltz actually did star Back to the Future and they and they went through all the other movies that they were cast differently because I got to explain it all to my 10-year-old son who was fascinated. He's like, I want to see the footage. I want to see what he looked like. And so we got into that whole conversation. But that could have kind of been in any movie. So like for a superhero movie about the DC multiverse, I was kind of disappointed overall. But kind of like Stephen was saying, it was fun to watch but not to think about after the fact but i like the fact that it's so divisive there's so many things to point to and points of view that people can have on things like it's a great conversation movie but i don't think it's a great movie
1: <laughs> just very quickly because we're hitting on the Nicolas cage superman point i was so excited when i heard that Nicolas cage superman was in it and for them to have nicholas cage superman and not have him talk or interact with the flash at all just seemed like a huge missed opportunity because already you know people in my audience are not as in tune with comic book movies as we are they did not understand why nicholas cage as superman was in this movie fighting a giant spider like it was kind of cool to see for us but they did not do anything to like make it accessible
0: for yeah.
2: anybody and it's really not a multiverse story it's more of a time travel movie like you said yeah. and yeah. alternate reality if you will y- yes through the speed force, he can see other realities, but he doesn't go anywhere. He, he just deviates the timeline, a la, you know, Marty McFly, yeah. and returns at a different point. And just, it's essentially Back to the Future 2, because yeah. he goes back, he goes to a different version of 1985, and everything is messed up
0: well, and spider-verse ends the same way too so i mean everybody just loved back to the future too and they just want to <laughs> they want to use that but michael take us into
2: our next piece here sure so meanwhile spawn sequel ago shows that terry fitzgerald and todd McFarlane productions had no idea how Hollywood works when confirming to Wizard that a sequel to the 1997 film was definitely happening. He declares, I just received the optioning letter, which means nothing more than the studio wanted to hold on to the rights in case they decided to make another movie. As we know, a Spawn sequel has yet to be a go anywhere.
0: (laughs) Still waiting. Still
2: waiting. And listen, that's another movie that like, I thought everybody that was in it pretty much acted their butts off. Just the movie is bad and the CGI is horrible. It's kind of the same situation in a way. And
0: and you'll be able to hear Michael expand on that when we release our Spawn review from the Patreon vault as part of our Superhero Summer series. So look forward to that coming up soon.
2: Yeah, another another movie that Adam forced me to watch. (laughs) (laughs) Also, it's mentioned that Ash... From Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti's Event Comics was slated to be the fourth animated film from DreamWorks, while a Rob Zombie directed futuristic film called The Crow 2037 was slated to be the follow up to The Crow City of Angels. And the craziest unproduced film news of all Gina Davis is rumored to star in a live action Sailor Moon movie to be produced by Walt Disney Pictures. Wait. <laughs> what yeah 40 year old gina davis is gonna be sailor moon okay not as the titular anime heroine but as the villain queen beryl yeah what would that movie have looked like in the late 90s i feel like it would have looked like gem in the holograms
0: (laughs) (laughs) i just can't imagine yeah that would have been bizarre because we like we know how the dragon ball movie turned out like 10 years later or whatever it's just like anime to live action just rarely rarely because they keep wanting to make akira that's never happened you know for reasons
2: honestly the only one that i thought was really good was um alita battle angel that was pretty cool. I, Robert, I really like that was, movie. I that think, movie uh, I liked.
0: Although I want to see the crow 2037. I don't really like the other two movies. I want to see a futuristic crow. Wait, You
2: don't like the first crow with the Brandon, Brandon Lee.
0: It's okay. It's pretty good, but it's not like it doesn't capture my imagination the way I think a futuristic one would like give me a new cityscape, you know?
2: Yeah, I love, I love the original crow. Yeah, I think too. I, like, I love it too. Especially, like, you know, the commercial and the trailer. Remember when they, like, they lit the crow on fire, and then they copied that in Daredevil? Exactly, (laughs)
0: yeah.
1: (laughs) A movie that does get made, however, is Mike Allred's Astro-esque, an independent film that the creator of Mad Men wrote, directed, produced, and starred in. It's announced that this full-length action-adventure sci-fi film that connects to his Red Rocket 7 comic will be released on home video January 21st, 1998. So Mike Allred was kind enough to loan us the Mad Men image for a UFO club. And in doing my research at that time, I did find a vhs of astro-esque on uh ebay but it's it's
0: hard to find is it not do you have it adam i don't i wish dude yeah because i mean it's a rare tape it was like released like directly through him mainly so because he had another movie that was released to g-men from hell where they oh, adapted yes. some characters from his madman comics but yeah like so his movies are really like underground kind of stuff especially this one because it's all self-produced have you seen See? it
2: i've seen it yeah uh, you can find ufo club streaming on amazon prime and tubi so check it tubi out for free yeah, much, all three of us make some sort of appearance in one way much or another. to my chagrin i'm in it <laughs> <laughs> seemingly out of ideas for casting calls wizard revisits the x-men and prints their ideas for who should play the mutants of marvel in live action at least they admit that they already covered this topic in issue 41. But with an X-Men movie actually in development at this time, they feel it's justification enough for another go-round. <laughs> there's
0: so many repeats of
2: this, because
0: Professor X, it's always going to be Patrick Stewart. That's that's who they always picked. You know,
2: right. it's funny. I was sitting there thinking about this today, and there's very few things that I could point to and say, that was the perfect casting. Patrick Stewart as Xavier is one of them. Like, perfect casting. Beyond that, there's not a lot that I'm like, wow, like, they nailed that. Like, that was a home run. Christopher Reeve, Superman, home run, you know? But, like... Bill Bixby, Incredible Hulk. Bill Bixby is incredible. Oh, oh, oh no, as, as... David Banner. David Banner, yes. David Banner, yes. Um, Lou
1: Ferrigno, great Incredible Hulk.
2: Yeah, but, like, most of them are just good castings, but nothing like those ones just paramount to me
0: yeah so i mean if they go with <laughs> you know, the two repeats again are for cyclops they want michael bean you know from terminator and everything else for wolverine they want robert de niro because they just won't let that one go he should have played wolverine he would have been great i'm not i'm not gonna say he wouldn't have been a good wolverine but that's always their pick now nicole kidman for gene gray what do you guys think do you have like strong feelings about what gene gray type is i think that would have worked at the time no <laughs> You had somebody in mind. I mean, Elite. that's a, uh, like, like are you looking for young or are you looking for, you know, they've been X-Men for a while team. That's well, a- if
1: my if Michael Bean is Cyclops, he's old, yeah. Because even like, I think Michael being a Cyclops or in the Terminator era would have been
0: perfect. But yeah, by nineteen, Yeah, was young at this point too, though. But true, yeah. he's just a Batman forever, you know, and she's looked younger than everybody. The great Batman forever. You know what the worst casting
1: is on this list? Yeah. Craig Kilborn is Iceman. <laughs> Give me a freaking
0: break. That's the <gasps> worst casting I've ever heard. They've been watching too much late night TV at this point. I
1: guess, but he was never great in anything. So why would he be a good Bobby
0: Drake? Ugh. Yeah. I mean, Carrie Elways is his Angel. He could sort of do an American accent, but not very well. So they'd probably just have to say, oh, he's British. He's got British money.
1: <laughs> like, you know, the one that that I wish had happened at the time
0: was Tia Carrera, Psylocke. That would have been perfect. That would have been pretty awesome, I think. I believe Iman, uh, who they wanted for Storm, was also. One that they'd already uh, put out there back in the day, but for Rogue, they want Charisma Carpenter from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. What do you guys think about that?
2: I like uh. Charisma Carpenter. Uh, I don't think she could play a southern character, but uh, uh, wh- who who they have for Cyclops? Michael Bean. They might have had a good casting for Jean. Then
0: Michael is gonna figure this one out. He's like the Jean Grey. Casting is uh, it's taking it's, me got,
2: it's got me. Yes. What's her face from Will and Grace?
0: Oh, Debra Deborah Messing? Messing.
2: Yeah, I don't She's, think she could have done it.
0: She could have, I guess. I mean, it would have been a new take on Jean Grey. I feel like, but it could or, be good. <laughs> or like Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore would have been good. I can't. I can't
1: believe that you are are passing over Nicole Kidman for Deborah Messing. <laughs> I'm That's thinking something. about redheads. I'm just thinking about. I understand, heads. but come on. I don't like wigs, so I you know. <laughs> Think what about Alicia? Alicia Witt of urban legend fame. She would have been
0: no, right but, age at this time.
2: I was thinking also Light about what's age, her face Claire. from uh, from my so called life. Um, oh, Claire Danes.
0: Claire Danes actually would have been an interesting Jean Grey, not with Michael Bean as Cyclops. But, <laughs> no, no, but no, no, no. <laughs> just get Jared Leto as Cyclops oh, just reunite them. Oh, no. but for Beast, they wanted Sam Neill. Which I find a fascinating choice. I mean, Kelsey Grammer was, like, perfect based on the animated series Beast. Mm -hmm. But if you're just, like, going 100% comics, the, like, original concept of him where he was a lot more, like, jokey, and then he becomes more
2: cerebral. So this is, you know, I don't see Sam Neill as a jokester. Like, er early Beast, before he turns blue, he kind of reminds me of Norm from Cheers. Sure. (laughs) You know? okay. <laughs> like, like, he's almost the, the, the same way he character.
0: Looks. Yeah,
1: he's almost the same character as Ben Grimm.
0: Now for Bishop, uh, they wanted Morris Chestnut, which just has to be one of the best names in Hollywood at that point. I'm gonna tell you. a good name. He was a boys in the hood, so I feel like he could have some gravitas that he would bring to that no. role. Because yeah,
2: Bishop's gotta be serious. He's gotta be so no I got a better one than that. Who's that? The guy that plays Candyman.
0: Oh, Tony Todd, man. Tony Todd. yeah. <laughs> Tony Todd's just like across the board. You're like, yeah, put him into all things. He's so cool. He's so cool. I want to hear your thoughts on Cannonball, though, because they want Jonathan Brandis. Southern not gonna work but the vulnerability of cannonball my friend jeff he loved new mutants that was like his book and he said what he, cannonball was who he always related to because he was so insecure he was trying to figure himself out and jonathan Brandis has that in spades like he was so good at conveying the vulnerability what's yeah the, he would
2: have been good what's the uh, kid from the, from the client
0: brad renfro right yeah now what about for marrow who is kind of like this newer character in the comics they want Farooz a bulk to play Marrow, <laughs> who's like this angry mutant who's like just taking on everybody. I kind of like that. Faruz is great.
1: She's great. No, she would she would she would have been perfect for any X-Men movie because she totally has that outsider vibe.
0: You know what's weird? I actually could see her doing a southern accent because of the water boy and playing rogue. Like she would have <laughs> been like the traditional rogue, but I think she would have been a really interesting take on Rogue. She would have been something. She's always yeah. interesting. What do you think about Steven for Gambit? Do you recognize Ew. him?
1: Yes, he's from uh, Starship Troopers.
0: Yes, but also he's the evil manager of the Max, Jeff from Safe on the Bell, who broke up Kelly and Zach. Oh.
1: Can I just say, Save by the Bell" has to be one of the worst shows ever made oh. in the history of television. I know that's where you. And I it. don't understand why people have nostalgia for it. So <laughs> I don't. I've seen every episode. I don't remember him on that show. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know if he'd be right for Gambit. But whatever at this point.
0: Yeah, I mean, like I, I was trying to think of anybody else that I would pitch for Gambit. I know in a previous one they had said Jean-Claude Van Damme.
1: <laughs> I remember that, and that made sense to me.
0: He, he wouldn't be bad, because Gambit doesn't have to be super deep, you know? He could just be a little yeah. mysterious, and that's what Van Damme has played. For Dr. Cecilia Reyes, also a very new character at this time, they want Gloria Rubin from ER. Okay, I don't think anybody had a strong attachment to that character. But for Maggot, they want Australian Lunatic, is how they describe him. Jacko, who used to do these Energizer commercials in the 80s. Do you remember this guy at all? No, not at all. No. He was like an Australian, like kind of strong man, crazy looking guy that would like yell and scream on these commercials. So there's like, again, Maggot, very new. I don't see that because Maggot, I don't know. He he just seems like a very different character, but maybe they knew something I didn't. How about for Mr. Sinister, guys? What do you like here?
1: Is that the Russell Crowe one? Yeah. And it's funny because Russell Crowe was a big rumor for Wolverine later on.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah he would have been actually Uh, okay as wolverine i think
1: these are always the weirdest section because they like they often it's like they'll have an inspired casting choice or they'll just find like a headshot of somebody that kind of looks like a drawing and just try to match those up
0: for bastion who is like the big bad of this operation zero tolerance which wizard told us earlier they did not like they want scott glenn stick himself from the the daredevil (laughs) netflix series for apocalypse i know you love this actor steven Brian
1: Thompson. I'm actually going to go to the X-Files convention next weekend, and he's one of the guests.
0: Oh, uh, I thought you were going to cite Dr. Mordred. He's the bad yes. guy in Dr. Mordred.
1: He sure is the bad guy in Dr. Mordred. <laughs> I, I don't know if he could pull him Apocalypse, but uh, he was great in Dr. Mordred. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he's Dr. Mordred quality. Uh,
2: a, a guy that I work with at one of the colleges I teach at was teaching a sci-fi horror class. And for a comic book movie, he played Dr. Mortridge for the class. That's fantastic. what they think? <laughs> they thought it was the craziest thing they'd ever saw in their life. They're like, <laughs> what is this?
0: <laughs> oh, now for Magneto, Rucker Hauer, like, I love it. Like, that would have been great. Yeah. Yeah. Especially He's... this time. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And a good finally, one for
0: Sabretooth, Clancy Brown
2: yeah
0: also perfect so all good stuff they're all good stuff in this casting call although again kind of lazy to bring it back around again <laughs> yes so with that we're gonna close this thing out hey guys
1: how about we get into some merch madness <laughs> This issue includes Hall of Fame, the top 10 action figures of 1997. We'll go through the list here and give our thoughts. So number 10 from Spawn Series 8, produced by McFarlane Toys, is Grave Digger. They kind of cite here that he just has a
0: lot of accessories and that makes him cool. Yeah, is he so? He's a comic book character from Spawn. You must be. I mean, I don't think he was probably at this point. They were just kind of creating their own concept, so they're just like, let's just make a cool-looking figure that's creepy. So it might be that too.
1: Gotcha. Number nine is Hydroblast Wolverine from the X Men Water Wars oh. line of from Toy Biz. Underneath all of his water shooting gear is one of the best-looking Wolvies in years. It is a pretty cool Wolverine. It's just so funny that they had. A water gun concept tied into the toy biz line. They were really on their last legs here. They must. Well, they
0: they were saying that like in Toy Fair, which had just kind of come out this during this period. They were saying that a lot. Like if you take off all these weird armors, they're actually sculpting really nice figures below. This one though, it doesn't look like he has claws. That's the strange part because he's holding a water cannon. There's no claws coming out of his fists. That's true. Yeah, I wonder if they're going to be a Wolverine figure. You guys said he has to have the adamantium claws. Yeah. Number eight from the
1: Star Wars Power of the Force line two from Kenner. It's the Grand Move Tarkin. I had this figure. I thought this figure was awesome.
0: <laughs> Soon to be recreated via CGI means in an era where that was not so common. And now it's become much more common.
1: You know, it's funny how he's only in that one movie and and then passed away shortly thereafter. And, and then they just did that. But yeah, Grand Move Tarkin was a cool character. Number seven, another cool character and a great figure parallax from the total justice line from kenner uh man that's a cool figure that is a
2: cool figure yeah awesome that cape is amazing yeah that's this way, is like, like a... way ahead of its time
0: yeah well this i think I that it's very Spawn-like. like i think they maybe stole that idea from mcfarland but
1: <laughs> totally but that's cool i definitely had that and i kind of want to pick it up again after after looking at it <laughs> number six from the ultra trek playmates line it's picard as locutus of borg it's a cool looking figure i really like this star trek playmates line i had a ton of them but i was out by ultra trek
0: i don't even know what that means what was ultra trek they look a little
1: bit more detailed like the the playmates line is 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 not as detailed as this the or the first uh line but they made Almost every character in that Playmates line, and like variants and like variations from specific episodes. It's a really cool line of toys, and I like. I'm always tempted just to just restart collecting them because they're so cheap. Then from the X Men Onslaught Toy Biz line, number five, uh,
0: it's Apocalypse Rising. His face here is pretty hilarious because he's just like,
2: (laughs) it's like a giant gorilla.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's a cool looking figure, though. Uh, number four. Oh, man, this is pretty awesome. I remember this from Todd McFarlane's Monsters line. It's the Frankenstein playset. It's kind of like a weird looking Dr. Frankenstein and then a weird looking well, Frankenstein. He looks, monster. Like, he
0: looks like the doctor from Nightmare Before Christmas, just taller.
1: <laughs> he does have that look number three man there's a lot of power of the force figures on here it's princess leia as jabba's prisoner it says the last star wars figure you'd ever expect to see also happens to be one of the best-looking figures in the line
0: well, and I love that they say here that, like, a lot of people said, oh, you know, she's hard to find because she was banned by parents groups. It's like, no, she's just, like, super popular, so it's hard to find it.
1: I found it pretty easily at the time, if I remember correctly. <laughs> uh, number two, another figure I had, Admiral Akbar, Also it's a trap! Star Wars Power of the Force, <laughs> yep, it's a trap. Sure, he's just an ugly looking fish guy, but good old Admiral Akbar happens to be one of the highlights of Kenner's great Star Wars line. It was a cool figure. He does look very accurate to the on screen presentation, which wasn't always the case with the Power of the Force line. And then, number one from the Spider Man Web Traps line from Toy Biz, it's Spider Man. It says with his etched in webs and a pose right out of a Todd McFarlane comic, this figure is
2: absolutely the last word in Spider Man figures. A very uh, lean waistline, I'd say. Yeah. And, yeah. And I would say in comparison to this Frankenstein play set, Parallax, this doesn't seem like the best figure of, of the bunch here.
0: No. I mean, I would I would have picked Parallax. I mean, I think that's just a fantastic sculpt. It looks awesome. Yeah. So yeah. well there's no accounting for taste over at Wizard, you know. <laughs> But hey, speaking of Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man, oh boy, we heard a lot from him today. And we're about to get to the end of it with Jim and Todd's hype machine. But that's the thing, guys. We've talked through all the Jim and Todd news this issue already. There was so much. So that means this time we're just going to get into our tally to keep things moving along. So in this issue, Jim Lee was mentioned seven times, Todd McFarlane eight times, which brings our running total to Jim Lee, 462 mentions, Todd McFarlane, 437. Really got to catch up there, Todd. Come on. Let's bring it back. You can do it. But hey. As we close out here, hopefully, we're going to leave you with a laugh. So, Michael, why don't you take us into Turok's
2: top 10? Let's see how this is going to go. This could either be really funny or really uncomfortable. Wizard top 10. The top 10 things we wished happened in 1997. Number 10. A giant flock of flying monkeys, not unlike those seen in The Wizard of Oz, to have descended on Hollywood and beaten Joel Schumacher with hammers the day before Batman and Robin began filming.
0: Wow, Steven yes. does not stand for that. That is dark. That's messed up,
1: because yes. Joel That's... Schumacher was a very nice person.
0: Yes. Number nine, Unlimited Access 3, welcome to Penthouse Comics. <laughs> okay. Number eight, for experiments in wormhole
1: technology to have gone awry and whoosh. France gets transported to
0: Venus.
2: This is their second
0: slam on France in as many issues. I don't a, know what's going uh, okay. on. Okay,
2: <laughs> I don't know. Number seven, Voyager exploded. I'm guessing that's Star Trek Voyager. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. they not fans. Okay. So, <laughs> I like Star Trek Voyager. I did too. I like Deep Space Nine better, though. Yeah, Yeah, Deep Space Nine is a better show.
0: Number six, Washington decreed free pie for all wizard staffers. Oh, they love pie.
1: Okay, number five, also very violent. For that guy from Sling Blade to have killed all those bleeping toy hoarders who make it impossible to buy a new Star Wars figure until it's been out for three months.
0: Oh, these collectors
1: are
2: frustrated.
1: Man, and now Mm. you can get those Star Wars Power of the Force toys for nothing. They're worthless.
0: (laughs)
2: <laughs> number four free pie for everybody
0: <laughs> now i i had to tell you about this steven this pie gimmick has been building okay and so your buddy frank miller they every mm-hmm. time they put him in the magazine a photo of him he has a word balloon that says i like pie <laughs> <laughs> that's just like their joke so there's they're on a, a pie rant i guess who doesn't favorite pie, Stephen?
1: Favorite pie? Ooh, it's between pecan or pumpkin. I would say big Thanksgiving pie guy, but I wouldn't turn down any free pie. My mother-in-law makes
0: a pretty good rhubarb pie with some rhubarb. Great, it's good. Yeah,
1: blueberry, boysenberry, blackberry. This pie. Is
2: Wizards the podcast. Guide the pie to pies. Yeah. also.
1: Kid- <laughs> Key lime pie is fantastic. Anyway,
0: uh, number three, the Supreme Court ruled the line item veto unconstitutional. Is that political? Is that ju- yeah? That's something. They're just not happy with how things are
2: going. I guess. Yeah, I, I guess don't. so. Sure. Number two, Greedo didn't shoot first. Okay. Gonna stake their claim on it. I apparently, uh, was this when they re-released the Star Wars movies? And yeah. Did, yes. and, and, and they changed it CGI. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Those came
1: out in like January, February, March of 97. That, that's why they did that. Yeah.
2: Number one. Oh boy. Midgets in clown shoes and wielding caulk guns full of cheese stormed the United Nations and brought the free world to its knees. Wah, wah. Nonsense. That's a. Th- <laughs> you, you ended '97 with a thud, Wizard.
0: They ruined. They should have. They had the pie thing going. It's the rule of threes. They needed one more pie joke to cap it off. Ah, sorry, Wizard. Hey, and those guys are Emmy award winning comedy writers now. So there you go. Huh. You get better. But did we get better? I think we felt great. uh We are glad that we got to come together for this conversation, Wizard '77 in the can, and. There's a lot of good quotes in this, Michael. You're gonna have to listen back to this episode. I know you don't listen. I won't. You missed. (laughs) I won't. So good. Just the first half.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We had fun. I got a long train ride one day. I'll, I'll, I'll check it out here and there. There we go. Uh, but, but, Stephen,
0: uh, do you want people to find you online? I know you want them to find your work. Where can they connect with your, your <laughs> filmography?
1: Yeah, you know, my social media, uh, it, I don't have any public social media now. But you can find uh, UFO Club, as Michael said, on Amazon Prime and on Tubi. With the uh, 25th anniversary of the X-Files movie and Can't Hardly Wait uh, this uh, past month of June, it ties into those pretty well. So mm-hmm.
0: We want to also share something special with you guys. You know, we already told him, Michael, earlier about our uh, nice conversations with the folks at Zenoscope. There's going to be three different uh, interviews with uh, go behind the scenes with them. We already talked to David Wall, so you'll be hearing that soon. But coming up as well is our second annual superhero fantasy draft. That's right on july 18th at 8 30 p.m eastern standard time you can get in on this you can be a part of the superhero fantasy draft if you know how the fantasy football drafts and things like that go same deal we're getting all the characters from image from dark horse you know from all the independents we're bringing them around you know the malibu ultraverse whoever you can think of chaos comics and you get to assemble your team and we're going to figure out who has the mightiest and most extreme comic book team it was very fun last year if you want to see out roles go to our YouTube channel and you can check out how that event went down. But there's only 10 slots and patrons have priority so if you want to get over there to patreon.com forward slash wizards comics to make sure you get a spot you could do that five bucks a month what are you getting you're getting full scans of the issues you're getting uncut early release episodes i will tell you like our we've been really cranking them out uh for our patrons this summer so they're getting a lot of fun stuff plus now what is part of that yes you've heard about it you've been excited by the release to the main feed of 90s super cinemas and so now we have four of those coming to you free this summer But after that behind the paywall new episodes where our patrons vote on what 90s superhero or comic book film they want us to cover but michael where can people chime in and tell us their thoughts on this episode and
2: whatever else is going on in their minds so they can go to the facebooks and they can go to twitter at wizards comics they can go to instagram at wizards underscore comics they can go to our youtube channel wizards the podcast guide to comics they can go to our Patreon, as you just said, they can go to our website, WizardsComics.com. And if you want to, you know, get some wizard swag, they can go over to Tee Public and find us over there and get some cool stuff. We love chatting with people. You know, if you go on our Instagram, especially, we post tons of images about the issues and, you know, different conversations on Facebook and just a lot of good conversation. And every once in a while, we get a comic creator who doesn't like us who trash talks us funny kid Just <laughs> <Yes. laughs> trying Steve to Did go or <laughs>
0: oh, <laughs> why would you do that from beyond the grave even but, <laughs> but again steven thank you so much for joining us it was fun to have you back it was a pleasure
1: to be back guys i've missed these chats and again thank you to william bruce west for making uh this suggestion via twitter and making this possible
0: but hey until next time keep your books bagged and boarded